0: Welcome and thank you all for standing by. At this time, all participants will be in a listen-only mode until the question-and-answer portion of today's conference. During the question-and-answer session, if you would like to ask a question, you may use star 1. Today's conference is being recorded. If you have any objections, you may disconnect at this time. I would now like to turn the call over to the Honorable
1: Jane Harmon, Director, President, and CEO of the Woodrow Wilson Center. Thank you. You may begin. Thank you, Operator. Good morning to... Uh, many on the east coast of the United States, good afternoon to some joining us in Europe. I understand we have over 200 uh, RSVPs uh, for this phone call, and uh, including a graduate seminar at Notre Dame. Uh, and oh, thanks, too, for those who may be tuning in from Asia, including China. Um, this is our 153rd Ground Truth Briefing co-sponsored by our Global Europe Program and the Kissinger Institute on China and the United States. Uh, cross-cutting conversations like this are the reason the Wilson Center has been named the number one think tank in the world for regional studies three years in a row. We're very proud of it, and I'm very proud of the team, including uh, those, uh, especially our moderator, uh, who are on this call. Here at the Wilson Center, we like to say that China is not rising. It has risen. It was true before and will only be more true in a post-COVID world. China plays a growing role in the foreign relations of nearly every country on Earth. That role consists not only of bilateral relationships, but new multilateral organizations of China's own design. These groupings, think Belt and Road Initiative, give it greater influence than in long-existing institutions that it had little part in creating. Today, we're focused on the 17 plus one, a group that includes China and 17 Central and Eastern European countries, or CEEs for short. During the Cold War, China partnered closely with European nations uh, of the USSR. Because of that shared history, it continues to view those nations differently than those of Western Europe, even though many CEE countries have joined the EU and NATO. To manage these relationships, China established the 16-plus-1 mechanism in Budapest in 2012, with Greece joining later as the 17th. With with 12 EU members in its ranks, the 17-plus-1 is seen by Western Europe and the United States as China's attempt to weaken European unity and amplify its influence, but China views it as a means to promote cooperation, and CEE countries see it as a way to attract Chinese investment. A new report by the China observers in Central and Eastern Europe uh, called CHOICE provides a clearer accounting of who is benefiting most from the 17 plus 1. Today we're discussing those findings with the report's lead author, Ivana Karashova, as well as Miko uh, Huotari, Executive Director of the Mercator Institute for China Studies in Berlin. Moderating our discussion is... Uh, The one and only Robert Daly, the talented director of our Kissinger Institute. Thanks to you, Robert, and your team for your hard work and creative programming in these unusual times. Please join me in welcoming Robert Daly.
2: Well, thank you, Jane, Um, and thanks especially for your leadership during these difficult times when we're all working from home. I think so far it's gone fairly well. Uh, we're really excited about the two scholars that we have joining us uh, this morning for this discussion. Uh, first, we will hear from Ivana Karaschlova, uh, who is in, calling in from Chechia. Uh, she is both a scholar with a PhD from Charles University and time studying in China and Taiwan, time to it as a Fulbrighter at the Weatherhead uh, East Asia Institute in Columbia. But she's also an institution builder. Uh, she is the founder of the Chinfluence website which maps Chinese influence in Central and Eastern Europe. And she's also a founder of uh, the group that Jane has mentioned, the China Observers in Central and Eastern Europe, or CHOICE, which authored together the policy paper we're looking at today, which is called Empty Shell No More, China's Growing Footprint in Central and Eastern Europe. And Ivana is the primary author of that report. We then have as a discussant uh, Miko Hotari, who is the Executive Director of Merics, a Berlin-based institute for China studies, that I want to recommend highly to all of you. I think that uh, no one in the world, no one institute, is doing better work uh, on China than Merics, which you can find at merics.org. Miko is an expert in Chinese foreign policy, China-EU relations, and also China's global governance. Uh, his PhD is from Freiburg University, and he, like Ivana, also has studied extensively uh, within China. So, what we'll do now is we'll first hear about the report from Ivana and then we'll go to Miko for some analysis of his own, but also for a Western European or EU point of view. So, thank you. Ivana, over to you.
0: Thank you, Robert, for a very kind introduction. I don't even know how to greet such a big audience, uh, whether I should stick to good morning, good afternoon, good evening, or good night. So, I might just go with a good day to everyone who joined in. And I would like to start by saying that it was a collaborative work of 10 China analysts coming from 10 different countries of the Central and Eastern Europe. So um, we sometimes needed to argue a lot. Sometimes we needed to search for common grounds. Um, so it was an intensive debate. And what I say here mostly during the Q&A session shouldn't be seen probably as uh, one unified voice of all the authors, because it would be impossible actually, or the whole platform choice, but rather it's my own view. So it has been a very long-held assumption that the 17 plus 1 uh, platform, which was established in 2012, so sorry, um, 2012, so eight years ago, is an empty shell, kind of an empty initiative where nothing is actually happening. And the reason for this assumption was that we tended to focus on two things, on the annual summit, uh, which looked like essentially like a speed dating. 17 prime ministers from Central and Eastern European countries met. Ki Chiang, Chinese Prime Minister, and they had about 15 minutes of chat, each of them. They're really a speed dating kind of kind of uh, meeting once a year. And we also tended to look at investments. But the investment into Central and Eastern Europe was, I wouldn't say marginal, but nothing dramatic, especially in comparison to Old Europe or Western Europe. Um, in comparison to overall Chinese FDI going to the whole EU, old member states. Um, the Chinese FDI we, which went to CEE was mere 2%. So, once again, nothing dramatic. So, um, and the complicated factor of why we considered 17 plus 1 as kind of a death platform was also the nature of the information we got. So, it was a piece of information in Czech Republic where I reside, piece of information in Estonia, piece of information in Montenegro, and so on. But we never collected them, we never actually Put them all together and once only all these information are put together then we can actually see what a 17 plus one is a kind of what kind of animal it is and the only entity which has access to all this information honestly is Beijing itself so the idea behind the whole publication was to try to piece all the information together to do an audit using the local language sources of 10 different analysts with 10 different language language capa- capacities and capabilities. And not to only focus on annual summits and investment, but try to tackle the whole scope, all the areas of cooperation. So not only government to government levels, but also sub-government and sub-national levels like the prior diplomacy, the relationship between Chinese cities and Chinese regions, because there is actually a cooperation um, in this area, and also focusing on people-to-people relations. So what is it that China is offering to CEE countries in terms of academic cooperation, media cooperation, youth cooperation, sports cooperation, and so on? So what we found actually was that the 17 plus one is not an empty shell. It's loaded with action. And China actually managed to establish itself quite firmly in the region within just eight years. Um, It's fact that China has been here present even before, but um, it was a latecomer if you compare it to, let's say, other established powers like Germany or USSR slash Russian Federation or even the United States. So what the findings were, um, I might divide it into good news and bad news. The good news actually, are that the EU countries as a whole don't seem to be or become more forthcoming to China on political issues. There are, of course, individual exceptions, like the exception of Hungary or Greece or Serbia sometimes. Uh, One day, for example, in the case of Hungary and Greece blocked a joint EU statement on South China Sea, But these exceptions... Or the motivation for the behavior of those countries could be actually traced back to domestic interests or foreign policy interests. So it's definitely not based on the evidence to say that the whole region of CEE countries became somehow forthcoming and more, um, more willing to please China on political issues. Comparing to China's relations with other developed as well as developing. Uh, China's economic impact on CEE countries is also relatively small. CEE countries are highly dependent on both trade and investment relations with mainly EU member states, while China represents a minor yet increasing share. What is also quite interesting is that, of course, the trade between CEE and China has increased since 2012, but so did the uh, trade imbalance trade deficit with China. What are the worrisome trends? So that was the end of the good news. Um, 17 plus 1 could be seen as kind of a hub and spoke system with China in the middle and CEE countries being the spokes. And there is almost little little to no or almost zero cooperation between the spokes. But what we have seen when we did the audit is the slow multilateralization of the platform. So the bilateral, previously bilateral relationship between China and Central and Eastern European countries started to be subsumed to the 17 plus 1 framework. And moreover, China started to contribute to the conceptualization of the CEE region as such. Within the CEE region, we have very different countries, Baltic states, um, Balkan states, V4, so Central Central European countries, which felt quite... um, uh, unhappy at the first sight to be seen as, as part of one basket, but the 17 plus 1 platform actually has um, an impact on how those countries started to perceive themselves. Where there was a divide, China utilized it and made it even wider. So We have seen that um, the old and new Europe actually is um, drifting apart, but thanks also not only but Thanks also to 17 plus 1. We have found that there is continuous work between the summits, so it's not just about the summits. We have found that there is a visible and thriving cooperation on national government and sub-government levels. There is a lot of going on in party-to-party relations and people-to-people relations. Since 2012, we have seen a number in Confuci- of Confucius Institutes in the region rising. And we have seen a very specific project and programs which are um, designed or which were designed for CEE region, like the Bridge for the Future, China CEE Young Political Leaders Forum, or political parties dialogue. All of these are absolutely non-transparent. We do not know who takes part, how these people are selected, what's going on, where they are traveling, when they are traveling, what the agenda is. quite worse than it, that member states don't seem aware of the process, so there has been a lack of interest on the platform, of the platform for analysts, from journalists, and also lack of capacity to deal with it from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So while they're sitting on the whole pile of information, they do not share those information. So once again, the picture is uh, quite blurred because of the lack of information and lack of collaboration. The result is a missing debate on what the platform actually means for CEE, what the benefits are, and also the lack of strategic thinking on what to do with the platform. There were calls of abandoning the platform from um, smaller political parties, specifically non uh, non parliamentarian parties in Lithuania, in Slovakia, in Czechia, but these calls are vague, non-systematic. So in a situation where nobody actually is advocating for the death of the platform, we started to look at what the option is, and we advocate for a more access and coordinated approach adopted by seventeen or at least by twelve EU Member States who are part of the platform. Um, and the strategy is called ACT. Um, it stands for Adapt Counter and Target. So we propose that um, the seventeen CE countries should assess China's existing and potential presence in the region. So define the priorities as well as risks stemming from this phenomenon. Counter, fully utilize the multilateral setting of the grouping. So while the countries of the CEE region are really small, there's no formal impediment preventing them from holding, let's say, 17 plus zero meetings before the summit to try to offset the asymmetry in relations with China. And the last part is target turn these platforms into offensive instruments for targeting China with specific demands. This can also help European Union in its policy towards China because more or less the 17 CE countries or at least 12 EU member states will advocate for exactly the same what the EU advocates, which is the leveling playing field, uh, which is the the, uh, transparency in financial financial, uh, cooperation and so on. So if the logic is that China is so important that CE countries want access to it and feel necessary to deal with China via the 17 plus 1, then they should be much more active. They should actually, if we use the um, parallel, China is the driver of 17 plus 1. 17 countries are just traveling with China and they even didn't start asking questions where China is heading not to mention that they should actually be thinking whether they should not steer the wheel. What it means for the U.S.? Um, well, the U.S. is an important factor in CEE relations with China. With several countries like Poland or the Baltic states or Romania, they're afraid of endangering their traditional ties in Washington. So, the U.S. should factor this in. But the real player or the, you know, player which is closer to CE region is of course the EU, and the EU should fully utilize the 7G 1 format. I might stop actually here because I think that it's a good uh, starting point for Mikro actually, if he disagrees with me. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Shall I take over immediately? All right. Yes, Excellent. please, sir. Well, uh thanks for the invitation and uh, thanks Ivana for this um excellent um platform indeed. Let me start by first of all, you know, lauding the work that your network is doing. Uh incredible expertise much beyond, you know, bilateral relations or an understanding of EU-China relations, but all, really the China expertise in your network is just fantastic. Wonderful colleagues. Um so this is this is great. Uh, I think what what this also shows is really the diversity of effectiveness um how China affects everyone, basically. And I can tell you from um, the German experience that we've seen, obviously, quite dramatic shifts uh, in that regard over the past two or three years. Just flagging for those of you who don't read German tabloids on a daily basis, um, that um, the lead editor of the largest German tabloid, Bildzeitung, has just over the weekend published an open letter to the Chinese president. And... uh, Complaining about certain Chinese foreign policy practices. So um, I think what that really shows is, is that, you know, China is today domestic politics for basically everyone, and um, that's a reality. I think that's quite well reflected also in uh, Ivana's report. Um, I would also like to um, start by saying that obviously this is exemplary network research, which is incredibly important going forward. And for that, again, very proud and also glad that I'm able to comment here. Um, Let me make three points um, relatively brief. The first is I think this report that Ivana has presented really includes a few findings that are of much broader relevance um, beyond the specific region that is covered there. And I'll start with that. The second point will be on you know, maybe a difference or some thoughts on the Western European perspective, if that's at all sensible to make that distinction. And then finally, on on smart responses, and I I think we have quite a few very interesting suggestions in there in that report. Um, So first, uh, critical findings with value beyond the region. Um, I think the the first takeaway really is that we learn a lot about China's foreign policy approach in that um, region uh, and much beyond that. The first is an attempt to shape, as the Congresswoman has said it earlier, the attempt to shape China-centered structures and institutions, uh, something that Ivana calls in her report multilateral bilateralism, um, uh, really an ambition also to shape these structures and quite ambitious regional diplomacy that is conducted through these new vehicles. Um, it's it's a comparison that maybe many in Central and Eastern Europe don't like to a certain extent, but what's happening there obviously is not too dissimilar to what China has been trying in Latin America, in Africa, with different formats that have these sub-regional um, natures, so I think it's worth comparing these experiences to um, I think we also learn a lot about um, China's view of Europe, which obviously, and I think that's the key takeaway really from that, um, doesn't align with what we think Europe con- constitutes. <laughs> and that's a problem. So one of the uh, key reactions in Brussels and in Berlin and other capitals, capitals was to that initiative to say, well, look, China, if you want us to have a one China policy, you should be having a one Europe policy. Um, now, that's obviously not the case. It's not going to be the case in the future, and that's a reality that um, Brussels and Berlin and other capitals have to deal with. Um, the second uh, finding and learning really is the, I think, extremely comprehensive nature of China's diplomacy and also multi-layered nature. And, you know, as Ivana said, you know, everyone was focusing on investment and trade, But what you really point out in in, in this report is that the importance of CCP diplomacy, party diplomacy, the role of youth exchanges, different ways how China's diplomacy is trying to shape thinking and networks, elite networks um, across the region, but also obviously across the world. Um, So uh, we, we really do ourselves a disservice to focus on public diplomacy, official channels only, but we need to take these. Wider um, approaches much uh, more seriously, and I think um final point on on you know findings beyond the region um, I think what really is the ambition behind that is is a structural drift in allegiances and alliances eventually a system of interconnected relations, as ivana puts it um, um you know where In long-term relations are being shaped, and I think that's certainly clear in in, in that initiative. And uh, our, I think, expectations for, you know, institutional corporations are probably very wrong when we look at China's diplomacy, um, as they are wrong when we look at the Belt and Road Initiative. So we are overestimating, I think, in many cases, what this actually can deliver and what it is intended to deliver uh, in many cases also creating wrong hopes so um, in hopes that you know lots of investment would be flowing from that initiative but in many regards we are also underestimating the impact that these initiatives and 17 plus one has and I think that's a really core takeaway from from that report it's not an MP shell it 's a long term process and it's quite um, impactful and um, to some extent not efficient, as we might think, from an institutionalist perspective, but it's quite effective. Um, So, uh, second big cluster of comments um, that I would like to share with you is on Western European perspective. And just you know, first thought here is it's important to recognize that 17 plus one is just one aspect of why European China policy and relations have shifted quite dramatically over the past two, three years. And many in the audience will be very aware of that but I think it's important to flag this once more. We're not in the same world of China policy as we've been just two, three years ago. Um, And the most important expression of that is is a new policy document uh, that has been published 12 March last year in 2019, which is called The Strategic Outlook of the European Commission on China Policy. And it, it is that document that flags in very explicit terms that we consider China not only to be a partner, but also a competitor and a rival in many senses. And, you know, you might think, well, that's just language and rhetorics, and um, to some extent that's true, but I can tell you it's quite an um, important shift in, in the way how um, policy is being communicated in, in, in Brussels and in other capitals. I, I, let me briefly, you know, take on my German hat here. Um, and tell you a view from Berlin, uh, which was unfortunately, uh, for a very long time, one that um, you know was looking down at that 17 plus one initiative, both in terms of you know us being, and I, you know, again Germans being angry about this Chinese effort but also angry about Europeans to take up this, these offers that have been made by China in that framework. And I think that was absolutely the wrong attitude. It was one that was really characterized by arrogance and a lack of understanding of what's really happening. So I can tell you that um, what we've been advocating as a policy stance is if we talk about weaknesses um, of European-China policy, you know, and usually – it was framed as a weakness, uh, 17 plus 1 as the divide and conquer strategy that is succeeding. I think the real weakness lies in Berlin and in Paris um, with regard to our own bilateral preferential arrangements that we seek with China and not so much in what Germans tend to call the periphery, which is obviously the wrong term and um, quite at the heart of the problem of us not getting to terms with a coordinated European-China policy. And then, you know, Finally, um, and before I uh, stop, um, a few thoughts on on what are adequate responses. Again, highly recommended um, for everyone to read the report. Um, and I think the the key takeaway from this is really knowledge, 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 transparency, and neutral vigilance. Um, we need to have. The advantage uh, in terms of understanding what's actually happening and also um, coordinating on on policy responses. Um, so that's a core priority, and it's extremely valuable to have these reports out there. I can say it's a shame. Ivana, correct me if that's wrong. That you know we didn't manage to put up some European money really for that, and that it depends on American money to actually get this research done. But maybe I'm I'm having the wrong impression
4: here. Yeah.
3: Um, so. Transparency, actually getting funding for understanding what China is doing is absolutely essential. Um, Second point, I'm more doubtful than Ivana about the feasibility to actually turn 17 plus 1 into something that has more ownership and strategic steering capacity for Europe and member states. I like the ambition. But I simply lack I think that it you know, there's there's a lack of um political will to, to engage in that way and also maybe coherence of the seventeen plus one is is overestimated. It's the right ambition, it's something that we should be supporting, but I'm a bit more skeptical about it. Yeah. And and the key takeaway for me really is um the EU must be much more geopolitical. So if we really think that, you know, it is potentially a challenge to European unity. If China expands its footprint in Serbia, um, just to give you one example, well, then obviously there's something we have to do about it and invest more and be willing, um, indeed, as Ivana is suggesting in her report, to make um, um, an offer that is attractive and that doesn't turn away uh, our near neighborhood but rather um, pulls them in. So there's quite some homework to be done uh, for Brussels and member states. And uh, again, really appreciate the opportunity to comment on this report and look forward to
4: questions.
2: Well, thank you, Miko uh, and Ivana. We look forward to uh, now uh, a discussion of all of these issues, um, and not just from an American point of view, but I hope in a transatlantic context. I wanted to check, uh, Jane, I think uh, that you're still with us. I know that you're very involved in the Munich Security Conference and transatlantic dialogues generally. Was there anything that struck you about this discussion?
1: Uh you there, Robert? Are you there? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Um yeah it did. Uh and that is the absence of conversation about the seventeen plus one in all the gatherings that I attend. Maybe that's my fault. Maybe I'm not listening carefully enough. Uh but I have been uh a regular at the Munich Security Conference for twenty years. Uh, at all of them. And I'm involved on the executive committee of the uh, Munich Security Conference, and I just can't remember a conversation about this. I'm glad there's a report. I'm glad we're discussing it now. Uh, I do get it that there's overlap in membership. It's That's very interesting. Uh, but my question is, uh, why is this the best kept secret?
3: <laughs> Ivana, you want to go first?
0: Yeah, I actually have a very long list of things I would like to do and say um, as well as to Miko because I find them quite provocative so I felt obliged to somehow somehow respond. Well, I absolutely agree that um, there is actually, well, China China looks at 17 um, plus one as kind of South to South cooperation and the very same basket is the cooperation with uh, Latin American countries and African countries. But what is different here is that um, the states do have agency. The EE countries actually manage to change the language of the final documents, which are produced after each summit. So I do see a huge difference in, uh, with other structures um, and cooperative uh, regional uh, regional organisations. China is building. And the second thing is that um, those countries have the EU as kind of uh, normative power behind. So the EU might be using uh, either, if we if we talk about the agency of the CE countries, or if we omit that, the EU might be actually using this avenue to push China even further or push it even more than um, ju- through the Franco-German axis. Um, as for the looking down on CE countries, well, this definitely didn't help. This um, antagonized a lot of countries, uh, especially in the Western Balkans, but broadly in the whole region. Uh, p- uh, pointing at CEE countries, calling them sellouts, saying that uh, those countries tried to attract Chinese investment, so they are kind of sellouts. While the data shows that 98% of FDI, Chinese FDI is going to all EU member states. So I think that this should be correctly <laughs> called uh, allowed, that this, this didn't really help. Um, yes, I absolutely agree that you should. Um, focus more on financing the, the expertise, not only in the new Europe, but also in old Europe that there are capacities, um, that there is actually homework to be, to be done. And you are correct that this study was supported by a grant from the National Endowment for Democracy, so from the U.S. taxpayers. As for the feasibility of the ownership, well, Um, I have some internal doubts as well, but the platform, the 17 plus one, is um, structured in a way or done in a way or operated in a way that you need one leader. And some of those countries are going to be free free riders. There are now free riders. They will remain free riders because either it's not their priority or they don't have resources to actually uh, pull this out. So you need one leader. Uh, we started to talk with the local ministries of foreign affairs. Some of them are quite supportive of the idea. And, of course, it's a long long process. It, it won't, won't be done in a year, in perhaps not in two years even. But I would be quite satisfied sort of if at least the discussion will start on what the platform is. Um, as the congresswoman correctly pointed out, it's, um, it has been here for eight years. But somehow we pretend, and by we I mean the whole world try to pretend that it's not here, but it's not going anywhere, it's not going to dismantle, it's going to be even more solidified. So we should be dealing with this issue.
2: Before going to Miko, I would just like to remind everybody who's listening in that we welcome your questions. To get in the queue for asking a question, you must press star 1. On your phone, and that we will then see your name and affiliation, and we will invite you to ask your question. Uh, Miko, did you have something else in response? Um, not really. Just I mean,
3: it, it's not a. Maybe I got the congressman uh, woman wrong. I, I don't think it's really a secret, <laughs> um, and um, you know, there's quite some awareness uh, on this issue in, in, in Europe. But I, I agree um, that, you know, that over the past two years, maybe there has been in line with this disappointment that everyone was expressing with this format. I think we've started to neglect the potential impact of it. Um, and I, I think that's why the, import, the report is really that important, um, because it shows, you know, this has a structural drift function uh, that is uh, quite relevant and it may maybe not the concrete institutional outcomes that we uh, have to look at, but more the long-term trend.
2: And al- along those lines, uh, I have a question, Ivana, that I'd also be interested in Miko's in fuse in, and that is we have seen China forming a number of uh, initiatives, some of which are organizations, some of which are a little harder to characterize. But like the Belt and Road Initiative, like the 17 plus one, like the CELAC uh, forum, which brings together China with Latin, Latin American and Caribbean countries, they have another mechanism with Africa, a union of all of the African nations and China. These are not treaty organizations. They're not quite like the G20. But what they all have in common is this very peculiar, very Chinese notion that other countries should join, sign up. And it's never quite clear what joining or signing up means, but to these Chinese-led vague arrangements. And this is something that other countries don't do. And I'm I'm curious about what motivates countries to join uh, in the first place. And in the case of Central and Eastern European nations especially, um, I guess I have two questions, and they they come about because you said that the 17 plus one, this Chinese-led organization, is actually changing the self-concept, the vision of the CEE region in those countries. That's a very powerful statement, Hmm. that China is driving their own sense of themselves regionally, and you said that China is in the driver's seat. Now, this is a kind of status that I think the CEE would be very hesitant to have given to Russia, to EU, uh, or to the United States. And so my question is for the CEE countries, what do they want from China? What do they fear about China? And then, and this may sound like a very sort of naughty, too provocative question, but I think it matters. Can you quit the 17 plus one? What happens if, say, Chechia decides uh, that it wants to quit? Does it worry about repercussions from China? Thank you.
0: That's a great question, the last one. Uh, Well, I absolutely agree that there is no clear blueprint of anything, um, any foreign policy initiative China is doing, being it BRI, being it 17 plus 1, being it FOCAS or other initiatives. So, I find this quite um, dangerous, because though there might not be any kind of malign master plan to, to start with. it's we still do not know what we signed up for. We do not know how those organizations or studies will evolve in future. While we sign all the documents citing, for example, a community of shared destiny, which we still do not know what exactly is, once (laughs) China will provide in 10 years' time or 20 years' time the definition, we already signed into that. So, yes, I, I I do see a problem with you know, not having a clear blueprint what all those initiatives uh, entail. What the CEE countries want from China, that's quite easy, economic benefits. It's all about economic benefits. It's rarely, very rarely about real political uh, admiration of of China or um, some kind of seeing China as as a normative power or as an alternative, as an alternative norm. of course, there are exceptions or there are policy players, statesmen who might see China in a more positive view, who might be dissatisfied with the European Union, might be dissatisfied with the Western kind of order as they, as they uh, place it. But um, it's all driven or all data show that primarily it's driven by, by expectations of economic benefit. And those expectations sometimes didn't materialize and that's one of the sources of the friction now between CEE and China. The CEE countries somehow felt that they were um, tricked by China, by all those um, promises of economic benefits which never materialized. What they fear, they fear Russia. China is far away. For CEE countries, Russia is the immediate threat. It's Geopolitically closer, we have historical experience with Russia. While China is far away, we are insulated from immediate China's power, be it economic power, political power, or military might. So there is less fear plus less understanding of what it is actually, what it entails to to deal with China. Can Czech Republic quit 17 plus 1? Of course we can uh, quit if we decide, but I don't think that we will ever decide to do that because one of the uh, benefits or so-called benefits of 17 plus 1 for CEE countries is that they get access to Chinese counterparts. Through EU they might get the access as well but it will be um, they will be seen as less valuable as France or as, or as Germany. So for CEE countries this is the primary avenue for dealing with China and that's also the problem for the whole EU.
3: Thank you, Miko. Any
2: thoughts?
0: Yeah,
3: maybe just complimenting uh, It's just for your information, really. Um, you know, one of the reasons why Germany has decided that under its EU Council Presidency that we will hold start in the second half of this year, um, the Chancellor really decided to have a EU twenty-seven China summit, which is now being called differently, but it's, that's what it is in effect. I mean, the, one of the driving forces of that was. Germany and the rest of, um, you know, the more Brussels-centered Europe should be offering something. And you can hear from that already, you know, this this tone, which is really counterproductive to the CEE countries to make sure that they're not completely falling into the 17 plus one trap. So the idea is that we offer a 27 member states plus one summit uh, to capitals in Eastern Europe um, to make sure that they don't need the 17 plus one. You know, this whole logic, it, it, it doesn't seem to be appropriate to me, quite honestly. Um, what we need to make sure is, is that, you know, the interests that Central and European, um, Eastern European member states have in their relationships uh, with China are being recognized in EU policy. And in many cases, that's just simply not the case. So I don't think, you know, that um, us being very generous in offering more diplomatic um, Uh, photo opportunities is is the way forward. But that's how it runs currently. That's the current trajectory. And uh, I think we have lots to improve there.
2: Great. Well, we've got a number of questions from callers and we're going to begin uh, with Joshua Eisenman, who is with the American Foreign Policy Council and is also a professor at Notre Dame. And I want to note that he's also, among other things, an expert on China-Africa relations and so he may have some comments comparing sort of the 17 plus one to China's similar efforts in Africa. Uh, Professor Eisenman. Well, thanks so much, Robert, and thanks so much. This has been fantastic, uh,
5: uh, very informative. Um, You know, my question actually goes to this uh, issue um, that has been mentioned uh, of the party-to-party exchanges and the youth dialogues. This is certainly something we've seen in China-Africa relations. um, And I I noted it, um, you know, on the CPCID's website that these things are happening, um, but I'm curious if the uh, if you all can talk a bit about the content, the duration, the objectives, the, the responses of these um, Eastern European parties to this type of outreach. And you know, connected to that, you know, these are places with their own experience with communism and parties whose members have lived through it. Do they see the Communist Party of China as a communist party? Um, how do they view it um, ideologically, um, especially amid these exchanges? Um, thanks, Robert. And thanks, to everybody.
2: Thank you. Ivana?
0: Yeah. Thank you, Joshua. This is, this is a very, very good comment and, and question. Um, as for the party-to-party and youth, youth dialogue, um, there was a very interesting development because Previously, CCP started, uh, targeted only uh, communist parties in the area and leftist parties. We have now seen them targeting all the parties, including far right, including um, centrist parties. They basically sent invitations to everyone. So they I think learned the lesson that um, communist parties in this part of the world might come into fashion, but they will probably never make it to the government. They might be the silent minority supporting the government, as is the case of uh, Czech Republic, but they so far will probably not not make it to to the driver's seat, to put it this way. So they wanted to target everyone, and the session is very similar in the same same manner, inviting uh, those leaders, inviting you, uh, young political players into China, offering them trips, uh, and so. We kind of a research which will evaluate how this is effective, whether it actually changes the relationship and it changes, changes policy of those policymakers, due to, well, mostly due to the fact that there is a lack of information. So when we proceeded in looking at party-to-party um, party cooperation, we haven't found much of the information in local languages. We went to Chinese websites. We analyzed um, Chinese photographs, photographs in Chinese websites. Looking at who is who, uh, and asking our colleagues in, let's say, Serbia, to identify the political players who are who are there, because there is really lack of transparency on on how this is actually played out. Um, do they see? Do those countries see the the CCP as a communist party? Um, it's a very complicated um, question to to answer. Um, to give you a personal experience, um, I was sitting on a panel with a um, very high-ranking Czech politician who was boasting um, openly that um, his uh, former communist party membership helps in dealing with Chinese because they will say, "Yes, of course, comrades, you are the same." And for more than 30 years, people with um, which were communist party, uh, which were which were members of the communist party in Czechoslovakia. They were not publicized that. They deleted it from the series. They didn't go, um, go around and boasting about that. This is now changing. I wouldn't say that this is a rule, but I felt um, quite strange that this has been debated publicly and this has been used as an advantage of those policymakers when they are dealing with China.
2: Nico, any thoughts?
3: I'm not really. I mean, this is comprehensive. Just mentioning, it's, it's certainly not only a feature in Eastern Europe. You, you have CCP ID, indeed, international department outreach all across the world, including in Germany. You had recently COVID-related this phenomenon that the international department is reaching out to parties. I think 200 they count um, to to have parties sign up to the Chinese mainstream narrative about the crisis and um, responsibilities. So um, um, it's something that um, happens everywhere and it's indeed one of the lessons I think we can draw from that excellent study that, you know, this is a core component of Chinese diplomacy that we need to take very seriously.
2: Thank you. We now have a question from Olivier Schwab of the World Economic Forum. Mr. Schwab? Okay, if that, um, let's go to uh, Lawrence Jin Charles, uh, the CEO of BK Development. Uh, if he's on the line.
4: Good morning, everybody. Thank you very much for your development. Uh, uh, quick question, please. Uh, uh, we know that uh, last year in 2019, we celebrated the 60 years of the. Antarctic uh, Treaty. So my question is, what are Chinese uh, intention in Antarctica? Since we know that since 1983, uh, since their first uh, military base, now in 2022, two years from now, they will extend their military base to their fifth military base. Uh, my question is, is should we review the ATS, which is the Antarctica? treaty uh, system, and if we are reviewing it, how to ensure that China will refrain expanding its military base in in, in Antarctica. Thank you.
2: Thank you. This is a little uh, off today's topic. We do, the Kissinger Institute does work with the Wilson Center's uh, Polar Initiative on questions of this sort, but it's a little bit off topic. So unless either of our speakers has something specific they like to say. Um, Maybe we should move on to the next question. But I, anything, Ivana, Miko? I'm happy to pass really on this I'm one. I'm not an expert. Okay. <laughs>
0: I'm we'll not an expert pass, on the but area. Is, the,
2: the polar issues are important, sir, so we will be doing future ground truth briefings on those issues. If we could go to uh, Mr. John Denny at the U.S. Army War College.
4: Yes, thank you. My question is from Miko, I think. Uh, Early in her presentation, Ivana mentioned that uh, one of the good signs, uh, uh, some of the good news is that uh, some of the Central and East European countries are being more forthright in their relations with China on political issues, but there were key exceptions to this, including Hungary, Greece, and Turkey. My question is, have we seen evidence uh, that China is getting what it wants through uh, those countries or other means, uh, more broadly perhaps, uh, when it comes to the EU's approach to China, perhaps in, in in shading, language, or analyses, that sort of thing. Is China getting what it wants out of this from a, a diplomatic or political perspective? Thank you.
3: Thank you. That's a great question. And I think um, Ivana will know at least as much as I about it, if not much more. Um, I think uh, to some extent, yes. Um, but there's limited, clear evidence. Uh, so, again, it's a, it's, a, it's a long-term developing story, but we have a few clear cases where it happened. Uh, one has been mentioned, uh, you know, there have been uh, countries that have tried to prevent a joint positioning of the EU, for instance, on human rights issues. Um, the same is true for uh, the South China Sea dispute um, um, outcome uh, and the, the, the sharpness of the language that the EU was able to put on um, on this issue. Um, we we know that language on the Belt and Road Initiative has been watered down uh, in the past because of certain concerns from member states. Um, and I think the case of Italy, uh, which is obviously not <laughs> a member of the 17 plus 1 network, but it shows um, how important this will be going forward um again easily not being member of this format but um you know there is there has been indications that you know with shifts in governments um some of them being more pro china others then going back to a less pro china stance uh, you will see you know the ability of brussels to actually you know engage in in a coherent china policy um uh, shift um and more specifically you know, we've just recently managed to come up with an investment screening um, framework on, that is, you know, really only a framework. It is not a EU competency in itself. Um, and this process was quite fragile uh, and it really also depended on support from, from Rome. And uh, all of this could have changed um, just um, because of the turbulences in the government there. And some of that is related also to to um, China, perceptions of these different actors. So it is possible. It, it depends on individuals. At the end of the day, who is sitting in governments, who is driving policy, and when, if you know, it turns out that you know, a, a network of elites in Europe is shifting perceptions towards China in a more positive way. Um, you will see more impact on of that going forward in the in the Brussels policy making landscape.
2: Thank you, uh, Ivana. Any comments?
0: Just two sentences. Well, the common foreign and security policy is the competency of member states, which means that you have, in theory, 27 different uh, China policies. Well, what I have seen with the investment screening mechanism, which which Mikko quite quite, um, rightly put put up uh, with Italy, was that Italy got second thoughts in the end. So, uh, to put it um, in in a non-diplomatic language, I think that CEE countries were quite happy that it's not then to blame this time, but it could be pointing finger at the old Europe kind of kind of um, um, childish, but but uh, probably understandable uh, thing. Um, well, what I have seen with the investment screening was that um, I saw European Union on, on the same page finally. But the question is, what will what will the COVID-19 uh, pandemic do with that? How the EU will respond? What the economic um, whether we will face economic repercussions and whether this newly found unity on China uh, were just short-lived or whether it, it will continue.
2: Okay, thank you. Again, a reminder to listeners that you can press star 1 to ask a question. We have uh, quite a few questions lined up, so I'm going to ask you to state your question uh, as succinctly as possible. Let's go to Maya May at Georgetown University.
0: Hi. Hi, my question is that um, uh, Ms. Ivana Kraskova mentioned that for CEE countries they joined the 70 plus one mainly for economic reasons. However, for right now all 70 CEE countries are having increasing trade deficits with China. So how is this trade deficit affecting their relationship with China and then what actions have China taken to satisfy the needs of CEE countries? Thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. The trade deficit actually um, made these countries much more aware of the fact that it may not be uh, quite quite uh, a good idea to take everything China says for granted. So there was a reality check I would say uh, for CE countries which are now skeptical. So this was the impact. But they are still awaiting those promises to, to somehow materialize and it depends on their their positioning. So the EU countries are relatively better off because they can count on, on uh, structural funds and so on. The Western Balkan countries are in a much dire, dire position. So that's the, the effect or the trade deficit has an effect, but it would not mean that the, seven, uh, that the 17 countries would be so dissatisfied to actually leave the format.
2: Thank you. Uh, we have a question from Rio Praning, the chair of PA Asia. Thank you very much. Do you hear me? Yes. Yeah.
5: Okay. Uh, the question is, aren't there two uh, quite essential game changers? So first, uh, what I understood of a summit between industry and the European Commission just last week, uh, that there will be a re-industrialization in Europe, a repatriation of jobs, and by consequence, a new trade policy and, and uh, all of that in a green framework. But the three uh, key policy messages are then, of course, for all of the EU member states, including those in formerly Eastern Europe. Uh, so first is, what is the consequence of Germany actually steering that? Uh, and of course, it depends, as was just said, on uh, the uh, measures that each individual Member state is willing to take, particularly with regards to eurobonds. Um, the other game changer is indeed.
2: Uh, uh, well, let, let, let's go to Miko because I'm sorry to have to cut you off, but we're, we're running up against the end of the program. So I want to make sure we have
5: some please some message to COVID-19, if you wish, because the Central European countries could call on China to simply uh, uh, help them with the damage that COVID did to their industries, uh, to their to their
3: societies. Thank you. Miko? Yeah, let me just reaffirm what Ivana said earlier. I mean, it's absolutely essential for the EU to uh, to deliver now. Um, and obviously, there are different opinions on, on how exactly that should be done. Uh, fiscal um, measures and support for um, countries that have been more affected is, is critical. This debate about euro bonds, et cetera, is far from over. I mean, we're just in the midst of it but all of this will matter tremendously uh, with regard to you know the coherence of the EU going forward in our china policy um, so what this really shows is it's all about homework um, it's about brussels actually getting its act together together with member states clearly uh, in that regard and the level of solidarity and practical means of cooperation um, this matters probably more than what China is actually doing, um, so it's often a, strength, a sign of weakness more than, I think, um, China's strength when we don't uh, manage to pull off a coordinated European-China policy, and the COVID crisis is a good point in case here. Ivana, any comment?
0: Mm, I have
2: nothing to add. I, I am struck per Miko's last point that you know, reading if the work of Ivana and her colleagues, uh, the, the Chinese activities in the 17 plus one, it's not a story of tremendous uh, diplomatic competence on China's part, but it is a story of activism and investment and therefore it's a story also of the absence of the EU, of the absence of the United States and China simply being out there providing concepts and providing platforms uh, in the absence of competition. I think we have time for one more quick question. We will go to Athziri Romano of the Central Bohemia Innovation Center.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, my question is regarding uh, the behavior of some uh, local governments and uh, how this influence in this uh, in this context of 17 Plus One. And I'm referring particularly uh, to Prague. Uh, the mayor of Prague, uh, for example. Uh, ended this uh, sister city agreement with Beijing and, uh, and now is more friendly with, uh, with Taiwan, which uh, um, reacted in, in China, a strong uh, um, reaction through their ambassador. So I just want to ask if um, what is your opinion about this type of uh, um, behavior from local governments and, and how can this influence uh, this context? Thank you. So, very, very quickly
0: on this, um, yes, <laughs> thank you, Robert. Very quickly on this, um, well, it, it did influence, actually, the, um, the um, relationship between Czech Republic and China. So, we can see that even the sub-government level of relationship is not insulated, you know, from, from the Chinese, um, Chinese repercussions. Uh, China sees all kinds of relationship as belonging to the same basket as governmental governments. It doesn't matter which actor actually is taking taking, uh, part in that. So China punished, uh, with um, question mark, uh, Czech Republic by um, cancelling orchestras, cancelling cultural events and also threats of uh, diverting the planes from uh, between Beijing and and, uh, Prague to uh, Croatia and so on, so it it did have uh, had an uh, effect, but of course the most important relations are still on the government-to-government level, so from the Czech perspective, this is just a friction, and that's uh, what the mayor of Prague did was full in his competence, and there's no way the national government should comment on what the municipality is doing, but of course the damage is done then on the government-to-government relations. One quick note on what Robert said about the absence of the EU. The EU is not absent, but the EU is not visible, so it is um, actually very active in terms of offering structural help, almost any infrastructure project which is built in Czech Republic has some kind of EU financing or co-financing. But somehow this PR is not sinking in into thinking of CEE population. So, for example, the Czech Republic is I think with UK leaving or already uh, left EU, we are now the most Eurosceptic country in whole Europe.
2: Well, thank, thank you, and thanks, everybody, for tuning in. This has been a ground truth briefing of the Wilson Center, which is open for business and very much wants to stay in touch with all of you on these important discussions. Thanks to Ivana Karaskova uh, in Chechia. Her report, the report she and her colleagues, is available at China Observers .edu. And thanks also to Miko Hatari of Merrick, whose work you can read at www merit. dot org. Uh, we wish all of you uh, continued good health as this pandem- pandemic. Well, we hope that it winds down. It's still developing, uh, but you're in our thoughts, and we hope to keep you in our conversations as well. Thank you.
0: Thank bye. you very much for thank your invitation.
2: You. Have a good day.
3: Bye bye. Thank you. Bye.
0: Thank you all for participating in today's conference. You may disconnect your line and have a great rest of your week. Thank you.